Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On this episode, we'll first cover the new film, Joker. This new supervillain drama has shattered box office records and has also gained a lot of controversial media attention. So why has this movie been such a hit? Christian Toto, award-winning movie critic, comes onto the show to break it down, explaining how the movie also touches on themes like mental illness, morality, and even empathy. After that, I'll be speaking with Myron Magnet, editor-at-large at City Journal. On this segment, we'll be talking about his newest book, Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution, a book that explores the life of Justice Thomas and how his approach to the Constitution is changing the Supreme Court. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode, where I've linked all the books mentioned, plus some good articles on both of the topics, and you can read those at blog.acton.org. Also, if you like this episode, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing this podcast with someone you know who's also interested in topics like religion, liberty, and culture. Or you could also help us reach more people by just taking a minute to leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. Today, I am talking with Christian Toto about the movie Joker. Christian is an award-winning movie critic and podcaster, and he is also the editor of HollywoodInToto.com. Christian, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, So like I said at at the top, today we're here to talk about the movie Joker. I think before this movie officially hit theaters, I don't really know if a lot of people were expecting it to hit with such the buzz that it did, because it's now become one of the highest grossing R-rated movies ever. It's grossed now $107 on its opening weekend globally. I want to ask you, what was your first reaction to this movie? When you went in, what were your expectations for it? Did it meet those? Did it exceed those? Tell me about what your first thoughts were. Well, there's a lot of pre-release hype that this was a different kind of comic book movie. It was darker. You're going to have an amazing performance by Joaquin Phoenix, and that this might be a a way to take these kinds of movies in in a fresh direction. And it just was a lot of buzz. And I have to say, it's hard to walk into a theater without acknowledging that and kind of, you know, saying, hey, what do you got? You know, kind of show me, show me you're as good as everything they've said. And I have to say, I was really mesmerized by the movie. I thought Phoenix was even better than I expected. And in a way that wasn't even showy. And I just was captivated from start to finish. And right now, it's, the year is not over yet. We'll, we'll get some sort of Oscar bait movies coming soon. But right now, it's my favorite movie of the year. What were you captivated by? I I just was fascinated by watching this person's descent, how society kept failing him, where, you know, the government medication, the the spigot was turned off, his coworkers couldn't treat him like a human being. You know, people in the streets would look at him askance. It it was just kind of a combination. You know, we all we all like to think that we treat other people well. And I think we often do. I think we're, you know, I think we're essentially a good country in that way. But there are people that we look look away from. There are people that we don't treat well. There are people that we ignore. We kind of push the boundaries. And I, I think his character in the movie kind of epitomized that. And, and obviously this is an extreme result where he kind of loses it and becomes the, the supervillain that we know. But I, I just thought it was a fascinating approach to it. And I think, it's, I think it's tricky to do an origin story for a character we know so well. And I think, you know, the, uh, the Bates Motel series did that beautifully with Norman Bates. And I think that uh, Hannibal Rising was a film that did it terribly. 
with the rise of Hannibal Lecter. So, I mean, it's it's not a slam dunk to kind of go back into the past, but I think this one did it in a very creative, evocative way. Um, you brought up a couple of the plot points there, just alluded to them briefly. So can you give us a, sort of a summary of this movie, kind of a, a little bit from start to end? Basically, what is this movie about? It's focusing on Arthur. He's a, a middle-aged man who's living with his mother, who's older and not in great health. And he's just struggling with life. He has mental health issues. He uh, he goes to the government for help with medication. He has a uh, seemingly a part-time job as a clown, and he runs into trouble there. People in the street beat him up. His coworkers are being un, uh, unkind to him. It just seems like a lot of things are not working in his advantage. And he's suffering. He he has dreams of being a stand-up comedian. He watches his favorite late-night show, dreaming of being a part of it. But just things aren't going his way. And the story captures his descent. And uh, it's a it's a precipitous one. Now, also, when you use the word that that you were captivated earlier in our conversation, I was also captivated by the movie, but because it was so beautiful, you know, everything from the cinematography to the color palette that was used to the score, the composer, she actually just recently won an Emmy uh, for composing the score that went along with HBO's Chernobyl. Could you touch on kind of the artistic elements in this movie? What, what about it was so beautiful in that way? Yeah, I think you just touched all the points. The director here is Todd Phillips. We know him best from his comedies, like The Hangover and Old School. So I wouldn't, I wasn't expecting that level of craftsmanship from Joker, but he brings it. And you know, I think the score might be one of the least heralded parts of the movie. It's, it's haunting. It's, uh, you know, it's arresting. It really captures the tone without going over the top. And again, I think. When you play Joker, there's such an opportunity to chew the scenery and to kind of go unhinged and really kind of just let everything out. And I think that what Joaquin Phoenix does is he kind of buries it. You can see he's struggling. He's trying to control himself. And it's it's not an outrageous performance. It's really, in a way, dialed in. I think, you know, some of the comedians, the great ones, like a Robin Williams, are best when they're holding back. You can still sense their energy. But when they're not going over the top, it's when they're the most effective. And I think that's the way it works here, where he's not ranting and raving. I think the only time he really lets go is when he's doing these sort of weird macabre dance <laughs> situations mm-hmm. out in the street. Like he's almost, it's the one time he can express himself. So a wonderful performance, an unnerving score, uh, a, a, a gritty, raw look at a New York City wannabe, which is essentially what Gotham City is. And it all just adds together. I just, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I'm going to shift our conversation a little bit because I would like to talk about kind of the difference between the critics' reaction and the audience reaction. Because there is pretty a pretty large disparity between the critics' treatment of the movie and viewers' reactions. Um, even a, a member of the Academy recently said, basically referring to censorship, she basically said, quote, this movie shouldn't have been made. Can you touch on kind of how the media has reacted so strongly to this? Yeah, you know, it's a bit of a head-scratcher for me because for months and months before the movie came out, the media was all excited about it. They were writing lots of pre-release stories. They were fascinated by it. And then when it came out, it's almost like there was like a record scratch where, you're, where the sort of the media narrative on the film just changed 180 degrees where it was going to cause violence and it was irresponsible. You know, I saw the movie. I don't see that. I don't see this movie as being overtly violent. There are certainly flashes of extreme violence, but I think, you know, I see, I'm a film critic. I see movies that are far more violent, more disturbing, 
almost every week. So I, I didn't think that really element played with the what the media was telling us. I don't exactly know why that switch happened with the media coverage, where they seem to be almost anticipating violence and, you know, there'd be a, a minor dust up in a theater and became national news that this happened during a Joker screening. I'm a bit confused. It, it doesn't feel overtly political and that sometimes can kind of cause a kerfuffle with the critics, but I, I didn't even see that either. So I'm, I'm a little confused by it. You know, I study Hollywood. I cover it. I've been doing it for like 20 plus years. I have to say this whole change in approach caught me off guard. How has it departed from previous critics' reactions, I guess? Because it seems to me that there have been a number of movies somewhat recently where the critics' reaction and the audience reaction is very different from each other. But what makes this movie unique in that? Well, yeah, it is interesting because a lot of times you look at Rotten Tomatoes and the professional critics will have a, a 50% rating and then the, the, the audience in general has maybe a 90%. It's, it happens. It happens often. There's definitely a disconnect there. And I do think that comic book fans, the moviegoers, are much more agreeable to this kind of content. I mean, I've seen movies like Venom from last year, which I thought was mediocre at best, and it got raves from the audience and did very well at the box office. So I don't think that disconnect is new. It may be growing a little bit. But it was interesting because when Joker hit some of the film festivals, it sounded like the reviews were overwhelmingly positive, a few naysayers for sure. But then when it hit wide release, that's when the, the switch came and many critics thought it was, you know, un, it just, you couldn't have this kind of movie in theaters. And I, you know, listen, sort of it's, it's up to the artist to make the stories and it's up to the audience to say, hey, we reject it or we embrace it. And uh, we are used to seeing very challenging material. I mean, you know, a lot of people point to uh, Taxi Driver as an as a, uh, inspiration for this movie. And I can certainly understand that. But that's a challenging movie with difficult themes and violence and, and, and upsetting moments. So, you know, we're used to that. We see that. I don't know why this one got sort of in this got pigeonholed in this very specific it's responsible for violence mode. I, 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 I'm, I, I don't get it. Do you think it's at all related to the fact that media is maybe uh, feeds so much more directly on fear, especially just with, you know, Twitter these days and clicks? Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that has anything to do with it? Yeah, I, I think that's partly to blame. I also think that anything that's big in pop culture in this point in our lives gets examined and over-examined and put under the microscope. We just, you know, it's like a new Star Wars trailer that comes out. We spend the next three days looking at it frame by frame. It's what we do. We've got all these different outlets, all these different reporters are trying to find something new and fresh to report on. So I get that to a certain degree. I just, the, the scope of it really kind of uh, took me aback. And, and, I, and again, once you see the movie, I don't think the movie is saying, hey, violence is wonderful. You're seeing a man collapse in front of our eyes. It's tragic. It's a tragic story we're watching. And I don't think you come away from that movie thinking, I want to be the Joker because he's great. You, you know, you, you think here's a man who whose humanity just crumbled and, and it's a sad tale. Now, speaking of audience reactions, I'd like to talk about what kind of nerve this is hitting in maybe our culture today or, you know, just with audiences at large, because um, you know, it's a very dark movie, kind of stuck with me a little bit psychologically. And you mentioned Venom earlier. Uh, you know, Venom is violent, but I mean, this is kind of a different level of dark, though, even compared with Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. So, you know, being such a dark movie 
but also doing so well at the box office. Why is this so popular? Why has it struck a nerve? Well, I think you're speaking to the quality of the film. I think the first weekend, everyone was curious about it. It's a comic book movie. It's the Joker. It's, you know, all the pre-release hype, where this is a new type of story that we haven't seen before. So I get the first weekend being big, but we're seeing it the last two weekends. It's really held its audience in a way that many films don't. So I think that just goes to the quality. It's the, the great performance, it's the music, it's the atmosphere, it's the fact that it's compelling. You know, at the end of the day, you can't, the word of mouth is going to sink or swim a movie and word of mouth is really helping Joker. Which just really proves how important artistry is in the storytelling. Yeah, you know, people, you know, listen, we're suckers for marketing. We understand hype. But at the end of the day, if a movie doesn't deliver, then we don't we don't go see it again. Then we kind of move on to the next big shiny object. But this movie has got staying power. And uh, that's people talking about it, seeing it again, uh, maybe going back on social media and arguing with friends, whether it's good or not. And, and I love that. I love movies that spark good, healthy debates about entertainment, about you know, morality. This one, I think, is very indicative of mental illness in our country right now, where we, you know, we don't, we often push it aside. And I think this movie kind of, it's front and center. It's fascinating to me. Hmm. In what ways is it indicative of mental illness? Well, here's a fellow who is almost crying for help. He, he you know, he, he was taking pills. He was connecting with his local, um, the, the bureaucrat who's trying to help him out, a, a counselor. He, he, he wasn't trying to be a bad person. He's a com- He's a clown. He wants to make people laugh. But when society didn't stand by him and when his mental illness took a turn for the worse, then things went south in a significant way. I, I just think it's interesting. And I, I, I think in our culture, we, we, we've often seen mass shootings where once you look at the history, you think, oh, that was a red flag. And that's a red flag. And how come we didn't stop this then when this fellow did this and said this and when the, the authorities noticed this? Well, to me, the Joker is a red flag movie. It's all about all the red flags that he puts up before things get worse. Now, before we close out here, I would like to touch a little bit more on the themes that you referred to earlier when you you mentioned empathy. Um, you've written a couple of good articles on this movie, and in one of them you wrote that, quote, much has been made about the film's potential to spawn real-world violence. The movie itself suggests nothing of the kind. The best art rarely does. Instead, it paints a world where empathy, not violence, is the solution, unquote. So how does this movie paint the fact that empathy is a solution? Well, just think of it this way. A lot of bad things happen to Arthur in the movie. What if one of his colleagues at work turned to him and said, hey, listen, you're having trouble. Let's let's go get a drink after work. We'll talk about it. Maybe if someone, maybe the, the government um, agency where he was getting medication, maybe they could have said, listen, I, I know we can't help you, but I know a clinic, it's a free clinic that they deal with patients like yourself who are struggling. Maybe I can help you. I, I've got, here's a number, call that. You know, it just sort of those outreach moments that uh, I think we can all look back on at a point in our lives where someone was extra kind to us. And, you know, we're not all jokers, but we all need help from time to time. And I, I think those little little moments of empathy are important. And also, you know, we've seen lots of content in recent years where we have empathy for the bad guys. Like Breaking Bad, Walter White was a drug dealer ruining countless lives, but we, we cared about him. So the, the, that show, Breaking Bad, humanized him. It wasn't evil. I didn't want to rush out and become a drug dealer. But, you know, great art can make you connect with characters, even if you maybe on the surface shouldn't. 
What does this movie, you think, say about the human condition? Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess we're all vulnerable. Um, I, I think sometimes in life there are turning points where, you know, your life can go in a positive direction or a negative direction. Um, I think we're all fragile in a way. I think we're all, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton said it takes a village, and I think there's some wisdom there that we, you know, uh, it's not just our lives and the people in our direct, you know, house or, or family. It's it's the people on the street. It's the people you work with. It's the people you meet. And uh, I don't know, maybe it sounds soft and fuzzy, but we should all be just a little kinder to each other. I don't think there's anything bad about that. Christian, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. For most of the last half century, struggles over the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution have largely revolved around the competing schools of, first, the living Constitution, associated with judicial activism and political liberalism, as opposed to originalism, associated with judicial restraint and political conservatism. But recently, the originalist school has undergone significant fissures, with some of its adherents supporting judicial engagement and rejecting the counsels of restraint. Because of this, people on both the left and the right in our constitutional politics support some form of judicial activism. On December 5 at the Acton Institute, Matthew J. Frank from Princeton University will be speaking on the rule of law versus the rule of judges. Save your seat today and view our full event calendar at acton.org slash events. When Clarence Thomas joined the Supreme Court in 1991, he found with dismay that it was interpreting a very different constitution from the one that the framers had written. But during his almost three decades on the bench, he has been laying out a blueprint for remaking the Supreme Court jurisprudence. Those are the words of Myron Magnet, editor-at-large at the City Journal, who is here to talk with me today about his new book, Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution. Myron, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Carolyn. Before we dive into the real contents of the book, I wanted to ask you what motivated you to write the book from the start. I really enjoyed reading this book and learning more about Justice Thomas. So what made you decide to write this book? Well, it came from my previous book, The Founders at Home, which is a history of the founding through biographies of some of the key figures. And what impressed me when I wrote that is what a magnificent framework of government they had conceived how they had given us a constitution that 232 years later is still the most avant-garde idea of government that anybody ever had, which is a self-governing republic as opposed to being ruled by somebody else. So Clarence Thomas has devoted his now 28 years on the bench to trying to restore that constitution and particularly focusing on that central idea that we are self-governing, we are not ruled. And you mention in the book that Clarence Thomas, he, uh, he was sent to a Catholic school by his grandfather when he was a boy. So what does his Catholic faith have to do with the way that he approaches understanding the constitution? Oh, that's a terrific question. It has a lot to do with it. Uh, The first thing is, remember that he grew up in segregated Savannah, Georgia, 
uh, he says that it's the closest to totalitarianism he would ever like to come. But in this Catholic school that his grandfather sent him to, which was segregated like everything else in Savannah, the nuns taught him that all men were created equal and that therefore segregation was wrong. So he always grew up with the sense that he was born free and that he was endowed by the same rights by the creator as everybody else. And of course, all, you know, the, the, the idea that there is a creator and that he has laws which lie outside of the realm of human law is intensely important to our form of government uh, because we have rights that the Constitution protects, and the whole purpose of the Constitution is to protect those rights, not to invade them. And Clarence Thomas has tried to do that over and over and over again. And, you know, he went through a stage of radicalism when he was at Holy Cross as an undergraduate. And when he ended up participating in a demonstration in Harvard Square that turned into a riot, he suddenly realized, wait a minute, you know, my radical ideas are completely wrong if they lead to this, if they leave me smoldering with this anger. And as soon as he got back to Worcester, he went into the Holy Cross Chapel and he prayed to God to relieve him of this anger that was eating away at his innards and that he felt was simply going to ruin his life. And it was there at that time that he asked himself, do I really believe in the American idea? Do I really believe that it guarantees us life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? He said, yeah, I do. I do. And if there's anything wrong with how we're carrying it out, we can perfect it. And he took it as his calling to be part of the perfectibility. Now, we are going to get back into that subject later in our conversation, but I first want to address the title of the book. It's called Clarence Thomas in the Lost Constitution. Why and, and how is this constitution lost? Where did it go? <laughs> well, you know, a big part of the book is my effort to describe as dramatically as I can the subversion of what Clarence Thomas takes to be the original Constitution, that is to say, the 1787 document as perfected by the Reconstruction Amendments that gave full citizenship to freed slaves and the 19th Amendment that gave women the vote. Uh, and and if you if you read his you know there are now hundreds of opinions over over his years on the bench and they are lucid and comprehensive and beautifully written and historically informed to the nth degree uh, and if it, it, the taken together these opinions lay out a three stage subversion of that original Constitution. First, by two 1870 Supreme Court decisions that basically gutted the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, that is, the heart of the Reconstruction Amendments that clothed free slaves 
in all the protections of the Bill of Rights uh, against incursion by state governments. And these two Supreme Court decisions opened the door to Jim Crow in the South, which was still going on, as I say, when Clarence Thomas grew up in Savannah. So he, one of the hallmarks of his jurisprudence is the idea that we judges don't hesitate when we see laws that the Congress passes and we think they're unconstitutional to overturn them. He says, why should we be any more reverent toward the mistakes of our own predecessors, they are humans, they make mistakes. If they have made a decision that is incorrect, we should just say so and stop pretending. So those two 1870s decisions, we've been behaving as if they are the law of the land. They're not. They're not only mistakes, but they're monstrous mistakes. Let's overturn them. Then the second stage was initiated by the theoretician Woodrow Wilson and carried out to a fare thee well by the New Deal. And this is the idea that the Framers' Constitution was defective, antique, unable to keep up with the rapidity of modern changes. And so what we needed was a different kind of government, which was ruled by the Supreme Court, which would sit as a kind of constitutional convention, permanent convention, making up laws as it went along, and a whole set of Ivy League-trained expert administrators in agencies in the executive branch, sometimes, sometimes supposedly independent. All of this, as Franklin Roosevelt said, amounting to a fourth branch of government, that has no warrant in the Constitution, and that's the administrative state that now gives us 240 volumes of rules and regulations, and we've got these these uh, unelected bureaucrats making laws like a legislature, carrying them out like an executive, and adjudicating and punishing infractions of them like a like a judiciary, with no separation of powers and no footing in the Constitution, whatever. Finally, there is the Warren Court and its successors, which decided, hey, we're not even going to pretend that we're rooted in the Constitution, but we're going to find emanations and penumbras and make up rights uh, that are simply not there. And uh, Clarence Thomas deplores the rights revolution, particularly as having harmed inner cities, because he says, how, how, are, how are kids going to learn if the, streets are, if the streets of inner cities are so taken over by gangbangers that kids are afraid to go to school, and if teachers and principals are prevented by law from disciplining the unruly and disruptive, and if the good students then go home to housing projects where nobody can evict drug dealers and noisemakers and what have you. So he says, just, you know, look at the practical consequences of what the rights revolution has done to the most vulnerable of our citizens. And so he says, where the court has gone wrong in, a, in permitting this to happen or in actually spearheading it and creating it, let us reverse, let us return to that 
to that wonderful constitution that the framers and the amenders gave us. You're saying so, SCOTUS, in permitting these three things to happen, the annulment essentially of the 14th Amendment, the development of the administrative state, and third, uh, this rights revolution. You say, quote, for Thomas, wrestling with these changes has been at the core of his career as a justice. So my next question for you is, how so? Because I would think that wrestling with these changes would be at the core of most, if not all, of the originalists sitting on the Supreme Court bench. So what makes Justice Thomas's approach to battling these changes that are radically against what the framers had in mind? How is his approach different from other originalists sitting on the court? Yeah, you know, that's also a really good question. Uh, Scalia uh, once said that compared to Thomas, he himself was a faint-hearted originalist. And what he meant by that is that Justice Thomas has very little respect for what lawyers and judges take to be almost a sacrosanct command, stare decisis, let the decision stand. We are to respect precedent. Well, you know, this is how the English Constitution works, that the colonists lived under for 150 years before they decided they wanted a written constitution because an unwritten one that evolves by judicial decree is too liable to tyranny. And uh, so, so Thomas says that's why they gave us a written constitution. And the fact is that what is the law in America is the Constitution and the statutes and the treaties. And everything else is opinion. Supreme Court decisions are not law. They're only law if they're correct. And so he is the justice who most explicitly says stare decisis is not wholly writ the way the Declaration of Independence for us is wholly writ. Uh, and he's perfectly happy to overturn cases, to overturn prior Supreme Court decisions. That's why so many of his opinions are either dissent from the majority's ruling or else concurrences with the ruling but not in the reasoning because he rejects the precedent that his colleagues are, are relying on. And what's interesting is that now this whole question of stare decisis has moved front and center in the court's decisions. And in, in some of those, it, it just this just at the start of the summer, uh, the issue that the left of center judges were trying to hang on to was the idea of stare decisis, because what precedents do they not want overturned? Above all, Roe v. Wade. And there's no question that Clarence Thomas, if given the chance, would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, which he has called an illegitimate decision. You also say in the book that the court now seems set to move down the trail he blazed. So where do you see this happening exactly? Can you give us some examples of this, of the court moving in, in the direction that he has paved? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, just uh, just this year, 
in a kind of technical uh, tax jurisdiction case. Uh, the court, in a decision written by Justice Thomas, a majority decision written by Justice Thomas, overturned a precedent. Um, and uh, this set Justice Breyer aflame. He said, "My God, if we're gonna if we're gonna overturn this precedent, what is going to be next? What is happening here?" Well, it happened, and just in this in this uh, the end of this last session, uh, Thomas penned a very elaborate opinion laying out his theory of how stare decisis should be treated, uh, and. He was, you know, this was not the majority opinion, but it was joined by Gorsuch, uh, and it is clear that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh uh, are very skeptical about the administrative state uh, and willing at least to willing at least to listen to the idea that stare decisis is not wholly read, and the wild card is going to be. Uh, the chief justice and whether or not he thinks he's, his role is as a politician or a judge. What's interesting is that President Trump and, uh, and, and his supporters like to boast that they have confirmed 153 federal judges, uh, which is pretty terrific. I mean, they've, they've, been, they've been like an army in doing this. Well, 20% of those are former Clarence Thomas clerks, and he treats his clerks like family. It's not just that he mentors them so carefully when they're working for him, but he never loses touch with them. He promotes their careers. He gives them personal and professional advice. Uh, and so he's been laying out this blueprint in all in all the... Oh, and the, the, the other answer to your question is that now some of the smarter law professors, like Akhil Amar, for instance, at Yale, um, who, you know, people, people just thought that Clarence Thomas was, was lost in the weeds uh, for decades, really. Uh, and now suddenly even, even law professors are starting to think, hang on, here is a very coherent intelligent, even profound body of jurisprudence that we need to take seriously. And certainly his colleagues are, are starting to take it seriously. That is to say his colleague to the right of center. And there is a whole troop of young judges out there uh, who have been trained by him and, and understand his style of jurisprudence. So he's laid out the roadmap He's persuading those in place that maybe there's some value in it, and he's got the troops in place for the future to carry it out. And I think it's quite possible, especially if we have a second term of a Republican president uh, and a second Republican Senate, that Clarence Thomas will be looked upon by future court watchers as the most consequential jurist of our era. Now, you mentioned Kavanaugh earlier there, so I, I can't help but bring up the Kavanaugh hearings because I, I would like to get your opinion on that. I was wondering, you, you drew a connection between the Kavanaugh hearings earlier in this book uh, and the hearings regarding Anita Hill. 
I'm wondering, did you start writing this book before or after the Kavanaugh hearings? And did those hearings change your approach to the book at all, or in your mind, maybe give the book some more relevance? Oh, yeah, it gave the book some more relevance. Uh, I, I, I mean, I didn't believe Anita Hill from the get-go, uh, though I think she's, you know, I, I mean, it's too complicated to get into, but I think she was not telling the truth. Um, but when you see, saw in the Kavanaugh hearings the Democratic members of the Judiciary Committee following exactly the same playbook to the letter and the same actors out there, Nan Aaron and her her Alliance for Justice and, you know, a host of other left-wing nonprofits uh, following the same playbook, this 11th hour springing of uh, long past sex charges, in this case, you know, sex charges that happened in the dark ages. Um, uh, you just know that this is, this is a charade. It's fake. Um, and anybody who was inclined to believe Anita Hill after watching the same farce unfold in the Kavanaugh hearings, had better had better start thinking again. But what it made me think, Carolyn, uh, all the more intensely, is that the reason that there is so much passion over these hearings uh, is that we really are, we're having a crisis of legitimacy now in this country. Half of us you know, those of us to the right of center think that we are living under the constitution of freedom. We're the freedom party. Uh, it's a it's, it's that framers constitution that guarantees liberty and expects self-reliance. But half of us think, and we can call them the fairness party, think we're living under that living constitution as as theorized by Woodrow Wilson and supersized by FDR, a constitution which judges make up and which administrators carry out and which is not moored in, in, the, original, in the original text at all. And, and so we have two different theories about where the legitimacy of our government rests and that's why we talk to each other with such anger about these matters, I think, because they're two totally incompatible visions. Uh, and I think that is important to understand what the, what the jurisprudential philosophy is behind both of them and what the, histori what the historical background is, which has been largely forgotten thanks to our educational system. Uh, and, you know, it's time to have a rethink because, because Woodrow Wilson, who set out the idea of the living constitution, was, uh, you know, he was, he was our first professor president. And he taught himself German so that he could read Hegel and Hegel's followers. Uh, and uh, his, his, uh, was Frederick the Great, an enlightened despot. And the thing is, it doesn't matter how enlightened your rulers are, because sooner or later, 
enlightenment evaporates, leaving only despotism behind. And we, we can see with some of the rulings that, you know, our administrators in the EPA have made, for example, that it's just plain despotism when they fine some rancher $130,000 and sentence him to prison for digging two ponds on his mountain acres 40 miles away from anything like a navigable waterway. When they do this to him and charge him with polluting the navigable waterways of the United States, though he's just trying to dig ponds so that he can fight forest fires, he can have water to pump, you know, that's tyranny. Um, And that is what the jurisprudence of Clarence Thomas is trying to combat. We are almost running out of time, so I just have one more question for you. You quote Justice Thomas in saying, quote, I think today we think that all the work is done with the laws. The heavy lifting for us was done in here. And at that moment, you say that he puts his finger on his heart. He goes on to say that because the people who raised us believed it in here, the nuns who taught us believed it in here. Can you unpack for us a little bit before I let you go the connections that Justice Thomas sees between character and government and morality and freedom or personal responsibility? Yeah, I mean, he believes that in order to maintain a free republic, you need citizens who have a character capable of liberty. And that means citizens who are self-reliant, who are independent, who look to themselves, their families, and their local communities to solve problems, who understand that life is going to be filled with obstacles and adversities and just have the gumption and the willpower to overcome them, and that in order to have citizens of that kind, you need a national culture, a national character, which supports and values that kind of individual character. And that's one of the things that, if you read his speeches, uh, just bothers him intensely, because we now have a culture of victimology, victimhood, and an idea stemming from, he believes, the New Deal, in which government is supposed not only to give us the right to pursue happiness, but it's supposed to give us happiness itself. And he says, this is a very silly idea. Um, we are right to pers- we have the right to pursue happiness, but that is a very hard pursuit, kind of like the pioneers. And he said, the dirty little secret about freedom is you're crossing the prairie of life on your own, and you better have the inner resources to be able to do it successfully. Well, Myron, thank you so much for joining me today. I had a lot of fun speaking with you about this. I enjoyed it, Carolyn. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, check out our website at acton.org. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. If you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton and let us know what you think of the show, you can email us at actonline at acton.org. Last but not least, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen. 